Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network podcast series. I'm Patrick Jory, Senior Lecturer in Southeast Asian History at the University of Queensland, Australia, and co-host of the channel. It's well known today that Indonesia has the world's largest population of Muslims. Constitutionally, Indonesia is a secular state, but right from Indonesia's Declaration of Independence in 1945, Up until today, the relationship between Indonesian nationalism and Islam has been a key subject of debate. And one of the central figures in this debate was the great writer and public intellectual and pious Muslim from Menangkabau, West Sumatra, called Haji Abdul Malik Karim Amrala, better known by his pen name, Hamka. Today, we'll be talking to Professor James Rush, who teaches Southeast Asian history in the School of Historical, Philosophical and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. He's the author of a fascinating new book on Hamka titled Hamka's Great Story, a master writer's vision of Islam for modern Indonesia, published in 2016 by University of Wisconsin Press. Jim, welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies and congratulations on the book. Thank you. How are you, Patrick? I'm very well, thanks. Jim, before we discuss the book, could I start off by asking you to tell us something about yourself and how you first became interested in Indonesia, and in particular in the field of Indonesian history? I became interested in Southeast Asia during a period of time when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Malaysia. Following that, when I set my sights on graduate school and on study of history, I decided to specialize in Southeast Asia. This took me to Yale, where I met Harry Benda, who was an extraordinary historian and student of modern Indonesia, and Harry Benda himself led me to Indonesia. I've spent most of my life studying Southeast Asia. It's my vocation, you might say. Here in the United States, and our American students really need to know about the rest of the world. We all do. Becoming a specialist in Southeast Asia was my way of contributing to that process. As for Indonesia itself, I learned through Harry Benda and through lots of other mentors over the years and through my own studies that Indonesia is a particularly deep and fascinating story all in its own right. And so the further I dug in, the more and more I became addicted. Can you tell us why you decided to write a book on Hamka? Why is he important and what did you hope to achieve with the book? 
I discovered Hampke in my years in graduate school when I was studying Indonesian. I began reading his novels, books that he wrote in the 1930s. These are simple uh, stories of life in Minangkabau and in Indonesia of the time that I found very attractive and compelling. So it was his stories originally that drew me in, and it was through his stories that I eventually discovered the rest of Hampke's story, which of course uh, wasn't at all about fiction, but about Indonesia. And I should say from the outset that my study of Hamka is a byproduct of my interest in Indonesia. So always for me, the big subject is Indonesia. I was looking for a subject that took me into the inside of Indonesian history. I'd already written a big book about colonial Indonesia. I remained very interested in colonialism and the Dutch East Indies, but I was looking for a project in which I could work almost totally with Indonesian language sources and through the voices of Indonesians themselves. That drew me back to Hamka, all the more so when I realized that Hamka had been a prolific writer his whole life, and that in addition to the stories that I first discovered, he had written in virtually every genre that there is, from the time he was a teenager to the day he died, and in the process had left behind a remarkable record of his life, but also of his thoughts, his approach to understanding Indonesia, but also his approach to understanding Islam and modern life. I came to the conclusion that Hamka's lifetime of work was almost a perfect window through which to see and to understand at least a part of Indonesia's modern history. Can you give our listeners a general overview of what the book is about? The book is, on the one hand, a biography of this figure, Hamka, uh, but it's not a conventional biography. It's really a narrative of his lifetime of ideas and his interaction with those ideas and with the times in which he was living. As Indonesia emerged from being a colony through the revolution to the early stages of its independence. And so the book is really about Hamka's contribution to the public discourse of Indonesia during the years in which Indonesia was, in fact, coming into being. So that's the big concept of the book. And this is where the idea of Hamka's great story comes into play. So the book takes us from his early years as a boy and a young man in Minangkabau through his early years as a magazine publisher in Maidan in the 1930s, the Japanese occupation, then the revolution, and then the many, many years, the few decades that he lived as a leading public intellectual after independence in 1949. So that's the arc of the book. The content of the book is about what he was thinking, and not only what he was thinking, but what he was writing about and in dialogue with his readers about in all of those periods. The book's main title is Hamka's Great Story, and that's a sort of a motif that runs through the book. What did you mean by the term great story? Great story is just another way of saying master narrative. There's nothing fancier about it than that. But my concept is that although Hamka wrote in an extraordinary range of genres and in lots of different registers and moods, he was basically always circling around one very big theme. And this is what I call his great story. And that theme is nothing more than how, uh, in his lifetime, modernity and the creation of Indonesia coincided with a resurgence of Islam in Indonesia, creating something completely new, which is modern Indonesian society, which in his hopes and dreams would be a society that would be filled with the good things of Islam. 
Before we take a closer look at Humpka's ideas, could you tell us something about the man, his background, the formative experiences in his childhood and in his life, and the main influences on his thinking? Humpka was part of a lineage. He was part of a religious lineage in Minangkabau in West Sumatra. His father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather had all been prominent religious teachers in the area of Lake Meninjau in West Sumatra. And they had been prominent in two different ways. They had been prominent as ulama uh, in this region. They had been the leading religious teachers in this part of West Sumatra, but also because uh, they had married into prominent Minangkabau matrilineal lines, they were socially prominent as well. So he was prominent through his mother's line and through the matrilineal lines of his ancestors, as well as through the religious lineage that he was heir to. So Hamka as a boy grew up being very aware of this lineage and of his potential place in it. What made this dramatic for him was his father. His father was known popularly as Haji Rasul, and Haji Rasul was a fiery reformist in the early 20th century, a man who had spent several years in Mecca, who had embraced ideas of Islamic purification and cleansing from his uh, the milieu in Mecca at the time, a, a man who had embraced uh, some of the new ideas coming out of Egypt through formative figures, like Muhammad Abdu and uh, so on. Uh, And his father returned to West Sumatra uh, with the intention of reforming the society and purifying Islam in West Sumatra and ridding it of all kinds of superstitions and feudal practices and errant ideas. And in this process, he was quite strict and successful. And so Hamka grew up in the shadow of this figure who was a very big figure in his own, you might say, home territory, but also a very big figure, of course, in his private life. And the drama of his childhood and coming up under Haji Rasul kind of shaped many of the things that happened next. He loved his father, but his father was harsh and strict. His father had a terrible temper. And in addition to all of that, when Hamka was 12, his father divorced his mother and left Hamka kind of bereft. It turns out his father had many, many wives, many, many women, many children. And this is something that Hamka came to criticize strongly in his father's life and in the life of Minangkabau men, especially elite men of those days. So because of this, Hamka had kind of an errant childhood. He didn't go to school for very long. But when he went to school, he went to schools founded by his reformist father, but eventually took off on his own, ran away. He went on the Hajj when he was a very young man and struck out on his own to become, he hoped, a writer because he had fallen in love with uh, words and with books, with making speeches, with poems and other things that he had been absorbing in the upland towns of West Sumatra of his day. I should mention one more thing about his father, and that is that his father was the person who established the mass organization Muhammadiyah in West Sumatra. His father and many of his other relatives, eventually his brother-in-law, were all the formative figures in introducing Muhammadiyah to West Sumatra, which was, by the late 1920s, a remarkably successful project. And so in addition to everything else that he was involved in, Hamka was swept up into this project when he was still quite young.
I found the sections on Humpka's family and his relationship with his father absolutely fascinating. And particularly, as you point out in his writings, he's quite critical of the traditional Minangkabau family based on its matrilineal kinship system. Can you explain a little further what the problem was that Humpka had with this particular form of traditional family structure? There were several problems he had with it. So one of them was uh, the matrilineal structure itself and the role of fathers in that matrilineal structure. In Minangkabau society, the most important person in a young person's life wasn't his or her father, but his uncle, that is his mother's brother. This is someone called a mama in uh, Indonesian. This meant, in Hamka's view, that fathers were kind of roleless as fathers, and this led them to be careless and indifferent fathers. And he came to believe this was wrong and that it led to families that were dysfunctional like his family. And that brings us to some of the other issues that he had. So keep in mind that uh, men, especially elite men, are marrying many different women, four at a time. But many did what Hamka's father did and had other wives too, in the case of serial marriages and divorces. And this meant that young people like Hamka, but all of his peers in the society, had relatives all over the place, right? Uh, they had cousins galore in every direction. They had brothers and sisters sometimes that they didn't even know, stepbrothers and sisters. And the result was uh, a great confusion. And this meant that, at least in his own family, but he believed in the families of many, many people, there wasn't... A a true coherent family life. And he came strongly to believe that the kind of nuclear family uh, that's presided over by uh, one father, one mother, and a household with children was a much better way to grow up and to become a person and a much better way to have a family altogether. And so this was one of the huge issues he had with Minangkabau society. Another had to do with uh, the practice of men taking extra wives. And not one, but several of his stories, he has characters who uh, make good marriages at the get-go, but then become successful and then desire to take on a second wife. And when they do take on a second wife, this kind of wreaks havoc in the original relationship, the nuclear family relationship that already exists. And this, in Hamka stories, always leads in a bad direction. So he felt that this was something else that was a common practice in Minangkabau of his day, and that should be reformed. So the matrilineal family structure, the lack of nuclear families, dysfunctional family relationships, he felt that this led to negative social relations in villages as People became jealous of each other. He experienced this himself. He had lots of cousins who were vying for the attention of his mama, but he also had cousins for whom his father was the mama, and he was vying for, the, uh, for his father's attention with them, and he found this very disagreeable. So he really praised and hoped that in the new cities that were popping up all over the Dutch East Indies, that this would be a milieu in which people could form proper nuclear families. Men would have one wife that they would stay with for their lives, and that this would be much more coherent and a more promising model for family life. You mentioned uh, his interest in the and support for the nuclear family. Of course, that's one aspect of modernity. And one of the central themes of the book is that Humke is a thoroughly modern person. He really embraces modernity. Yet at the same time, he is a, a, a pious Muslim and comes, as you say, from a tradition of Muslim scholars and teachers. C can you 
talk about Hamka's view of modernity in Indonesia and how he believed Indonesian Muslims should engage with modernity. Hamka, I mean, like so many other people, was uh, thrilled with all the new things that were popping up all around him during his lifetime, uh, not the least of which were books and things, but all kinds of other new machineries and so forth. And so one can well imagine that there was for him and other people of his generation kind of this visceral thrill, that uh, modern world that was appearing all around him. But also he became a devotee of the ideas of the Egyptian reformist, Muhammad Abdu is the leader here, uh, but also of his uh, disciple Rashid Rida and other thinkers coming out of the Middle East who had been working through the problem of modernity and the problem of the West and the problem of science and the problem of enlightenment ideas and all sorts of things like that. And who had come to the conclusion that Muslims should embrace the good things that the modern West was contributing to the world, including science, including mathematics, including new roads and bridges and all the rest, that we, they said, we should embrace these things. They don't contradict the teachings, the true teachings of Islam at all. In fact, they said, uh, the Quran tells us, urges us to embrace new knowledge and to learn and grow from it. So Hamka embraced that idea entirely. And so his idea of modernity wasn't particularly fancy, but it included the idea that in this day and age, Muslims are foolish. We Muslims, we Indonesian Muslims are foolish if we turn our backs on all the good things that we can learn from the West and on modern life in general. At this point, we'll pause briefly for a sponsor's message. When we come back, I'd like to talk about what really is the central theme in the book, which is Hamka's view of the relationship between Indonesian nationalism and Islam. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Professor James Rush about his new book, Hamka's Great Story, A Master Writer's Vision of Islam for Modern Indonesia. Jim, perhaps the central theme of the book is Hamka's view of the relationship between Islam and Indonesian nationalism. Reading your book once struck not only by Hamka's devotion to Islam, but also his fervent Indonesian nationalism, which makes me wonder, is our understanding of the story of Indonesian nationalism too dominated by the the secular nationalists? And has the Islamic element of Indonesian nationalism perhaps been underappreciated by scholars? Yes, I do think that the Islamic aspect of Indonesian nationalism has been overlooked for quite a while. This is one of the things that's appealing about this topic and getting to know Hamka and his life and his circle of friends and the degree to which they came to embrace Indonesia. They came to embrace Sukarno's Indonesia, basically, this idea of a nation that was being formed within the colony. And so when you begin digging into this, you realize the degree to which the members of these famous mass organizations in Indonesia also embraced nationalism fairly early on, although within Islamic circles in the late 19th and early 20th century, there were huge debates around this and the tension between pan-Islamic ideas and nationalism and so forth. So these were all occurring in Indonesia too, among the ulama and the kind of literate Muslim elite. 
But by the late 1920s and early 1930s, many of the people who were activists, members of these new mass organizations, and this was particularly true of Muhammadiyah, had embraced nationalism. They didn't right away embrace revolution. That's a different story. But they did embrace nationalism. And so by the time Hamka, for example, is publishing his famous uh, magazine in Maidan, beginning in the mid-1930s, Indonesia comes up all the time and is ever more conspicuously a vision that he and his readers and his other writers share for the future, this idea of Indonesia. A related question might be, is our understanding of the history of Indonesian nationalism too dominated by Java and the Javanese, and should more attention be given to the Sumatran vector of Indonesian nationalism with its perhaps more religious inflection? For sure, Java dominates uh, so many things about the history of Indonesia, as it does so many things about Indonesia today. So I think for a time, uh, Sumatra, but also Sulawesi and uh, Makassaris, and there were the cities of Borneo were also places that had populations of people who were part of this discourse, who were reading and writing, receiving these magazines and literatures and so forth that were promoting the idea of Indonesia. And so the picture is definitely much bigger than Java. However, I would say also that so because so many prominent Indonesian nationalists of first generation and second generation, uh, people like Sutan Shahrir and Muhammad Hatta, because they were Sumatran, the voice of Sumatrans has been heard for a long time in studies of Indonesian nationalism. There are probably some others whose voices we haven't been hearing quite as well. But when you think about the role of uh, Muhammad Hatta in uh, kind of the early formulation of Indonesian nationalism, Sutan Shahrir, and lots of others, including a lot of first-generation Indonesian writers that also came from uh, Minangkabau. And when you think about figures like Tan Malaka, Abdul Muis, and so forth, they're all Minangkabau, and they were all in the game, activists, uh, in public intellectuals, very early. Hamka, his life, he lived through a politically very tumultuous period. It includes the rule of the Dutch in the late colonial period, the Japanese occupation, of course, the, the outbreak of the Indonesian Revolution, the sort of chaotic Sukarno years, as well, of course, as the new order military dictatorship under Zahato. And Hamka seems to have been able to kind of work with all of these regimes, even though he, he falls foul of them at times. So how, how was he able not only to survive, but thrive through these different changes of regime. That's really true. He was very resilient. He was also very adaptive. During the Japanese years, uh, as he famously writes about in his own memoirs, he became a, a public collaborator with the Japanese regime in Maidan. He was a public figure who openly supported the Japanese. And in return, he won favors and boons for Muhammadiyah during the war years. And he hoped to use his influence with the Japanese to foster the Muslim community during the war. This frustrated him uh, quite a bit in the end. And also, he was to pay a heavy price for this because when the war was over, he was stigmatized as having been too much of a collaborator. And he went through a period of great shame at the war's end. In fact, he fled Maidan at the end of the war when people who had been his friends had turned their backs on him. And he fled and went home to West Sumatra and established a new course of action as the revolution began. In the revolution, he immediately became engaged. Uh, he did believe in Indonesia. Now he was a revolutionary and he joined a variety of committees and groups and took on responsibilities and positions in the revolution as it unfolded in West Sumatra. He wasn't 
a leader in the sense that Muhammad Hatta was and other political leaders, but he was uh, he became a prominent voice for the Indonesian revolution. And at one time, he was in charge of a large committee of like 56 revolutionary groups and organizations that were trying to get their act together in their opposition to the Dutch. When the revolution was over, Hamka made the big move of his life. He immediately, the minute the Dutch surrendered, he went to Jakarta and established himself as part of a coterie of the new leaders of the nation. And basically, he remained there for the rest of his life at the very center of uh, Indonesia's public life, but which also was the very center of its uh, publishing life and its intellectual and literary life. I should say that the big asset that Hamka had as a person who almost chameleon-like worked his way up and through these tumultuous experiences was his gift for words. So he had established himself as a very popular, but also ultimately authoritative writer in his days in Maidan, still as a quite a young man. And during the revolution, when the Japanese years were over, he began publishing furiously uh, right at the get-go, 1945, 1946, 1947, publishing a slew of small books, one right after the other. And this is something he continued when he moved to Jakarta in the early 1950s. And he was such a prolific writer, and he was such a clever and popular, genial writer, that by the early 1950s, 52, 53, 54, his books were literally flooding the bookstores of, uh, of this new country. And he also published regularly in newspapers and magazines and so forth. So he was able that way to place his name in public all the time. And this eventually gave him great public recognition. In today's vocabulary, we would say that it gave him celebrity. And ultimately, as he became known to for ever more serious books on the subject of Islam, modern Islam, modern Sufism, and other big topics, it gave him a lot of popular authority. So that by the mid-1950s, early 1960s, he was a national public figure. That is, a household name, not by the millions of Indonesians who were not yet literate, but in that growing group of people who lived in towns and cities who were now buying books, going to school, reading books and magazines and so forth. Hamka became a figure in this way. One of the themes in the second part of the book is the rise of the Indonesian left, the Indonesian Communist Party and Hamka's concern with that. He seems to have supported the actions taken against the Indonesian Communist Party in 65, 66, even though he may have been taken back by the extreme violence by which it was carried out. Could you say something about how the Indonesian left viewed Hamka and, and vice versa? Hamka had a kind of a complicated relationship with communism from the very beginning. In the early 1920s, kind of in the first wave of excitement about the new possibilities for the colony, communists and reformist Muslims had kind of a rapprochement for a while because both groups were opposed to the Dutch, both were opposed to imperialism. Uh, Hamka would have described himself probably as a socialist his whole life. He was a fierce critic of capitalism as it operated in the colonial world, but also later as it operated in independent Indonesia. He didn't have deep analytical views about this, but this was his visceral set of feelings about uh, imperialism and capitalism and, and so forth. 
But what turned him against communism initially occurred in the 1920s when his father, who was running a, a very influential school at the time in the uh, Minangkabau Highlands, was attacked by young, young members of the very new Communist Party of Indonesia, bitterly attacked and in a way kind for a period of time ruined by these young communists, some of whom had been his own students. And this was a lesson for Hamka seeing this happen, to see his father kind of brought low by these attacks on his integrity, by accusations that religion was uh, pablum, that it was opium for the masses and so forth, and that uh, ulama like his father were just uh, kind of uh, people who were collecting money from their followers and feeding them a line. And so Hamka witnessed this when he was still very young. So he remembered this later in the 1960s when the Communist Party came after him. And in a famous incident in his life in 1962, a popular left-wing newspaper attacked Hamka for being a plagiarist, that is, for having stolen the story that was the basis of his probably most popular novel, a novel that's in English is called The Sinking of the Van der Weyck. A ship. So why would the Communist Party in the 1960s attack Hamka? And I think the answer is they attacked him because of his authority. Pramudia Anantator, who was a part of this attack, said that you know, Hamka has got like three million followers, people who read him. He's a man of influence. And I think that this was part of the Communist Party's effort to bring down people they viewed as the pious Muslims. So they viewed Hamka as a spokesperson for the pious Muslims, the Muhammadiyah people and so forth. They were politically influential. They had been very influential in the 1950s through uh, the organization, the party called Mashyumi, which was openly anti-communist and so forth. The Communist Party had an interest in bringing him down because this was part of their culture war, the big culture war that was unfolding in Indonesia by the early 1960s. And Hamka was right smack in the middle of it because by this time he was absolutely a convinced anti-communist. And in his magazines, he was arguing against communism, against the communist attack on Muslim society and Islamic society in Indonesia. But he was also uh, making the positive case for Islam through propagation of the faith, something called da'wah, the idea that we Muslims, it's our job to convince others that we offer a better way of life, that the way of Allah is a better way than the way, the atheistic way that communists are offering you. I should say, however, that uh, Hamka's own critique of Indonesian society mirrored some of the critique that the communists were also making. He also frequently wrote about the class structure, about the great gap between rich and poor. He, As I was mentioning, he was a great critic of unbridled capitalism. And so he took some pains in his writings during this period to disaggregate this set of ideas, his own critique of the society, and some of his own ideas, which we would call vaguely socialist on the one hand, from the communists, who he said had embraced an utterly materialist view of the world. And of course, we cannot accept that because we do not believe that the important things in life are material. Hamka's relationship with what today is called political Islam is, is fascinating, I think. You mentioned in the book that he doesn't really have much to do or say about the Jakarta Charter. His relationship with Masyumi is an interesting, ambiguous one. He seems to be supportive of the secular state ideology of Pancasila. And towards the end of the book, you compare him to the 
perhaps better known internationally, Egyptian Islamic political activist and intellectual Saeed Qutb, who's associated with the, this more radical, uncompromising strand of political Islam. Could you say a little bit about how he saw the, the ideal relationship that Islam should have with politics? Yes, and so let's back up a little bit. I think that Hamka was somebody who came to believe in democracy. And so as early as 1945 and 1946, when the revolution was uh, very much on and people were thinking about what will happen next, what kind of country will we make out of this when we succeed? And Hamka was an avid proponent of democracy. And he made an interesting case for how democracy actually fit within the mainstream of Islamic ideas going back to the very beginning. So he told his readers that by embracing democracy, you're not abandoning Islam. In fact, you're embracing something that Muhammad prepared us for, that the Quran prepared us for way back when. So he embraced it. And along with most of the other members of Mashumi during the 1950s, he stuck to it. I mean, he believed in elections. He actually himself ran for election, won. He was a member of the Constitutional Assembly in the mid to late 1950s. And so I think he remained for his whole life uh, a believer in the idea that democracy was the best path for Indonesia. He accepted the 1945 Constitution of Indonesia that had the Jakarta Charter in it, although he wasn't happy about that. But he accepted and he told his readers that we should accept this country of ours, this new nation of ours, as it is, including the Constitution. In the mid-1950s, when he was in the Constitutional Convention, he took the opportunity to marginalized Panchasila and replace it with God is great, Allahu Akbar, saying that Islam should be the philosophical foundation of Indonesia, not Panchasila. So he and a bunch of others, including Muhammad Natsir, made a strong case for abandoning Panchasila at that time and embracing Islam as the foundation of Indonesia, not as a theocracy, but as a democratic state based on the values of Islam. That would have been how Hamka would have understood it. That failed. And so later, when Suharto's in power, and there's no chance at all of restoring the Jakarta Charter, he finds a way to embrace the Panchasila again by explaining to people and explaining to his readers that the first sila of Panchasila is belief in one almighty God, and that's Allah. And he said that every other principle in Panchasila flows from the teachings of the Quran, flows from us, what we believe. So we can embrace Panchasila after all. So that's where he ended up. Let me say something about 1965, because this is a, a complicated period in Hamka's life, primarily because Gestapo and the massacres of the fall of 1965 and early 1966 occurred when Hamka was in jail, basically. He was a political prisoner during this time. He wasn't actually in a jail. He was incarcerated in a hospital. He had been arrested by, not clear exactly who, but some people on Sukarno's team with a bunch of other Mashumi leaders, his old friends. A lot of his old friends were all incarcerated at the same time. And so he was out of play during this terrible event in Indonesian history. And he remained out of play until uh, early 1966 and was not completely out from under house arrest until May of that year. And so he was kind of saved from having been caught up in the middle of that terrible event. When it was over, he believed without question that the communists had started it. Suharto, the United States, and others uh, had concocted a cover story that would place the blame for this horrible event on the 
communists themselves. We understand a lot about this now, but at the time we didn't. And Hamka, because he was already predisposed to be suspicious of the communists, right, because they had become his bitter enemies in this culture war before 1965, he believed it. And so for the rest of his life, he kind of accepted this cover story as what had really happened. And he said, we've been saved. It was an ugly event, but God has acted in history. The Communist Party is gone and we are saved. So we should be thankful for this, even though we should pray that nothing as awful as this should ever happen again. Uh, So he put all of those thoughts on paper and in speeches and sermons and so forth in the years following 1965. Humpka's this controversial figure really throughout his lifetime. How is he viewed by Indonesians today? I think Humpka's having a kind of a renaissance. There are a few universities now that are named after him. Every now and then, uh, they make a new movie of one of his old novels from the 1930s. I think he's a revered figure in certain circles in Indonesia, and I would describe those circles as being the Muhammadiyah circles. And keep in mind that this is an enormous uh, mass organization with millions and millions of devoted followers. And in this group, Humpka is, I think it would be right to say, revered. So Hamka is remembered today. Not all of his books are still read, but some of them definitely are. He wrote a book in the 1930s called Modern Sufism, in which he kind of confronted the problem of Sufism in Indonesia and Southeast Asia and came up with a workaround, which permitted his readers to embrace certain aspects of Sufism on the one hand and to reject or marginalize other aspects that seemed to be just what so many people were looking for. And this book is uh, still in print and still discussed and debated and used up until now. So he's still an influence. And at the end of his life, of course, he wrote a huge 30-volume commentary or tafsir on the entire Quran. Uh, This is definitely still in print, and some experts, not me, have written that it is the most widely read commentary on the Quran everywhere in Southeast Asia. That is in Malay-speaking Southeast Asia because it's in Indonesian. In NU circles, Nadlatu Ulama circles, Hamka was never the great figure that he was in Muhammadiyah. And I would say in that realm, the realm that's highly Java-centric, Hamka is a much less well-known and less revered figure because they have their own figures that are in some ways comparable to him. But an interesting thing that we might mention here is that when Hamka ran to be a member of the Constitutional Convention in the famous elections of 1955, he ran in central Java and was elected. Since the end of the New Order regime in 1998, some scholars have referred to a conservative turn in Islam in Indonesia. I'm just wondering if an understanding of Humka's thinking can help us better understand what's happening in Indonesian Islam today. I think so. I mentioned before this concept of da'wah, this idea of propagation of the faith. Humka realized by the late 1950s that the Indonesia that he'd been imagining and hoping for wasn't shaping up in the way he had hoped. And so he threw himself into this process of propagation. He helped to found an enormously influential mosque in Jakarta. He published a a very influential magazine. He mentored generations of young students. He encouraged the whole process uh, among Muslims of uh, learning about their faiths, becoming stronger Muslims, becoming intelligent practitioners of their faith and propagators of the faith, because he thought that this is how the culture war could eventually be won. There were 
enemies is probably too strong a word, but competitors. The number of Christians was growing in Indonesia. The number spiked after 1965, but even before then, the growth of Christianity in Indonesia was something that troubled Hamka. And in addition to that, until 1965, there were the communists, and they were really growing dramatically during that whole period. And Hamka thought the solution to this, that, that the end of the culture wars would occur through earnest, devoted, endless propagation. These culture wars flourished in the early 1960s, and then he took them up again, along with lots of other Muslim leaders and thinkers and public intellectuals and mosques and so forth during the new order. And this was a process that eventually succeeded. So I think the wave of Islamicizing tendencies, you might call them, that occurred in the 70s and 80s in Indonesia, you couldn't say that Hamka caused them but you can make a direct connection between this whole process of intense dakwa propagation and this process of Islamization. A lot of it doesn't have to do really with being more conservative, not necessarily. People began using uh, more conspicuously Arabic phrases in social encounters. Women began to wear the jilbab more frequently than they had before. This, of course, eventually is a trend that picked up speed until it became almost universal among Muslim women in Indonesia. And in the midst of this, much more conservative and today we call Islamist schools of thought penetrated this atmosphere. Hamka's old friend, Mohammed Natsir, founded something called Dewan Dawa Islamia Indonesia, which was a, a much more earnestly Wahhabist organization and began propagating these ideas with a lot of funding from the Middle East. And so there was a turn in Indonesia in the years following Hamka's death in a more conservative direction. Some of this is nothing more than more openly devout practice of mainstream Islam, but some of it is definitely more Islamist in its character. So there came to be people in Indonesia who became followers of thinkers like Said Qutub. And of course, there were eventually individuals who joined groups or movements like Al-Qaeda and the rest. Jim, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we conclude, would you be able to tell us whether you're working on a new project and what that project is? I have a very new project. I've just come off a couple big ones, including this book about Hamka. I'm beginning to think again about colonies, and I'm going to spend some time back again in the days of the Dutch East Indies and maybe concentrate on the 1930s to look again at structural and intellectual understandings of this period that we now know occurred at the very end of the whole imperial project. I've always been interested in this, but one reason I'm even more interested is that these days, the scholarly world is all about post-colonial everything, and I'm not convinced that we still don't have a lot to learn from the deep study of colonies themselves. James Rush, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Humka's Great Story, A Master Writer's Vision of Islam for modern Indonesia. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other recent podcasts, including Vanessa Herman's talk about her book, Unmarked Graves, Death and Survival in the Anti-Communist Violence in East Java, Indonesia, or to Anthony Reid on a history of Southeast Asia, Critical Crossroads. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. Hey,